Hey there, welcome to Takeaway with Sam Okus, a podcast from Nation's Restaurant News. I am Sam Okus, editor-in-chief here at NRN, and this is the show where I give you an all-access pass to the restaurant industry's most influential decision makers. This week, I am talking with Justin Rosenberg, the founder and CEO of Philadelphia-based fast casual Honey Grow, which has 31 locations in seven markets on the East Coast. Honeygrow celebrated 10 years in business last year, and it has a really fascinating growth story that includes a rough patch in 2017 and 2018 when Justin was forced to make some really hard decisions, close some stores, and reevaluate his business model. Honeygrow now stands as a great example of how an emerging brand can mature and adapt over time. And Justin joined the podcast to talk about some of the mistakes he and his team made, how they got Honeygrow back on track, and what other restaurant entrepreneurs should know before they scale their own concepts. In this episode, you'll learn more about why you should take time building your business model, why you shouldn't get too carried away with complex technology, and why mistakes can be a blessing in disguise. Jumping now into my interview with Honeygrow founder and CEO, Justin Rosenberg. Also, don't forget to stick around after the interview as I will share my seven takeaways from this discussion, actionable insights that you can take with you on the go. Have you heard about the California Food Service Instant Rebate Program? You can save up to $3,000 instantly on energy-efficient food service equipment when you purchase from participating dealers. Find out more at www.caenergywise.com slash instant-rebates and find a participating dealer near you. Skip the paperwork and save instantly on your food service equipment. That's www.caenergywise.com slash instant-rebates. All right, Justin Rosenberg, the founder and CEO of Honeygrow. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Uh, you and I have spoken many times over the years. I've loved to watch the evolution of this brand. Uh, but for anybody who's listening who's not in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, New York, uh, Eastern Seaboard, they don't know about Honeygrow, give the quick synopsis of what this brand is all about. For sure. And, and always great catching up with you through the years. So thank you again for having me. Honeygrow, we're a fast casual brand based in Northeast. Um, we make freshly made stir fry salads in our signature honey bar, um, 31 locations, seven markets. Um, I founded the company back in 2012 and it's been a fun ride. Yeah, 10 years now, uh, which, you know, I, I, it's it's significant, I think. And it, we're, we're going to probably see a lot of brands in the next two, three years, recognize a decade in business because it was an explosion of brand development in the early 2010s, especially in the fast casual right. industry. In that 10 years, we've seen so much happen. There's been a, you know one curveball after another thrown at emerging operators from a decade ago. Not everybody's made it. Um, but here we are, you know, you're still standing. Um, you know, tell me about the the progression of Honeygrow's growth to 31 locations, because you guys had, you kind of sure. exploded out of the gates in the early years and then, you know, have, have gone through some bombs. So what was the, what were the early sure. years like? And, you know, tell me about sort of this process of getting here. Yeah. So <clears throat> really, I came up with the idea back in 2009, um, truly for health reasons. I was you know, for context, I weigh 185 today. I was 240. Uh, I wasn't, you know, 
benching 400 pounds, that kind of 240. I was, I was a unhealthy 240 and um, needed to lose weight. And uh, what I was doing, I'd made salads for lunch back when I was in the finance world and um, worked for a company that owned shopping malls as an asset management. Um, wound up making salads for lunch and the stuff that I had prepped left over, I threw into a wok at night at home, some noodles, made a stir fry. And over time, and I was, uh, for two years, I was fully plant-based, I was vegan, and I just reversed a lot of the stuff that had going on. And, you know, there's clearly a correlation of what you eat and, you know, your health. So um, my passion has always been food. I love the idea of, of building something that people are connected to, great brands that people feel a passion for, something that I just want to spend my life doing. So wrote a business plan, um, found investors, and came up with Honeygrow, I mean, prior to finding investors. But... Honey Grow, playing worse, honest eating, growing local. Um, you know, we, we're making stir fry salads and opened the first one back in 2012, then opened another one. And then, you know, as you said, like we really blew up and we wound up having, I think within four years, 15 locations, 14, 15, and uh, everything was, was great and uh, moving quick. And uh, I came up with a second concept called Mini Grow, which was really more of like a business solution to some of the challenges we had in terms of construction. Our construction costs were, were astronomical, only going up. We had to figure it out. We had to grow. Um, so this was kind of like a, a way to do a ventless version of, of Honey Grow. And um, instead of doing one like a smart human being would do, we did a bunch and in, in Manhattan <laughs> and opened seven, seven, seven markets um, with Honey Grow in, in one year, brand new management team. You, you, it's like the textbook example of everything never to do. <laughs> um, like, oh, well, we could do this because, you know, everything was great. And then suddenly, you know, you, you wake up and you're, you're running out of cash and things are still expensive. And, you know, this is end of 2017. So crazy to think, mm. you know, it's over five years ago at this point or at five years ago. And um, we really had to make some serious changes. So, you know, back in 2018, it was all right. Well, kind of like it's one thing being a founder. It's another thing being a CEO. And we had to make some some serious objective decisions. And. It was pretty simple. I'm like, all right, well, we need to obviously, you know, reduce GNA, figure out a way to make the model better, stronger, faster, because we knew the model worked. The model of Honey Grow was always working. We had mm -hmm. to figure out, you know, how to make it better. And, and at that point, actually, we figured out how to reduce CapEx. Um, and so we said, all right, well, let's just, you know, not grow for a year. Um, we were in a bunch of different markets, including Chicago. And we had one unit doing okay in Chicago, but I said, just kill it. Like at this point, it's too far out. It's going to be more expensive. We're not ready. You know, let's take a step back to move forward. We sold Boston, D.C., New York, everything else. Let's focus on this. Um, a very good investors. And they're like, all right, just do it. And provided some additional capital to get out of those leases. Mm -hmm. And um, back in 2019, that's what we did. So we, we completely reversed um, the loss really in 2019 and um, made the model better, stronger, faster, and ready to grow in 2020. And, of course, COVID. But by middle of 2020, we really... We were EBITDA positive, um, profitable, um, ready to go. So we, we figured it out. And then since 2020, we've opened eight locations, you know, all doing, you know, call it low 20% store level EBITDA. Um, you know, our EV is like two five. So the model's strong. And, and as a company, we're at about 20%. So we're, we're, thank God, doing very well. Um, we have an amazing team. You know, we really reduced the GNA back in 2018. Um, but the folks that are with us today are absolutely incredible and have poured their hearts and souls into this company. And quite frankly, you know, I'm very proud of this group and we're a small group. I, I find it interesting. There's a lot of companies out there with big G&A that are emerging growth bands, brands, bands, 
emerging, emerging growth brands. Uh, I'm a firm believer in you don't need a lot of GNA. You just need some really good people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we're at today. So, you know, we're, we had our best year this year. Prior to that was our best year last year. Um, but that chance to catch our breath and to really refine the model was the best thing we could have done. Well, it's interesting too because you guys you had a presence in major markets. You you've closed um, Chicago, and you you as you consolidated a little bit. Uh, you opened in smaller yep. markets. You've identified potential, especially in Pennsylvania. Um, yep. I, w- w- tell me about that decision because obviously, again, in COVID, with so many downtowns kind of you know becoming ghost towns, suburbs took off. But you guys were already there. You already acknowledged the potential in those kind of towns. Yeah, I mean, in 2018, we're like, look, you know, the the cost of doing business within downtown urban markets was just became too high. And by 2018, everybody was going downtown. The costs, real estate costs, rents were high. Construction costs were high. But we said, look, we can open up in Christiana, Delaware and pay, you know, a fraction of everything and still do the AUV. And the, the margins, the economic returns are exponentially better. And the white space is so much better. And it works because we kept doing that at that point in time. It, it, it clearly, the data showed, like, all right, this works. So we made that decision really it was mid-2018 in terms of growth. You know, that said, today, Boston's are, you know, top three in sales, top four in sales, those locations. They do phenomenal. New York is doing really good. Um, our DC Metro is doing really good. So I think time really caught up. And thank God, you know, all of our locations are doing very well. Um, but in terms of the growth strategy, it's like, look, we signed a lease for Owings Mills, Maryland. Um, we're in Baltimore, but at the same time, we're doing Arundel, Maryland. We just opened in Bel Air, Maryland um, about three or four weeks ago, and that's doing phenomenally well. So it's a strategy that we've had for pretty much four years, and now everyone's jumping on the bandwagon and great. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think I think the key is I think a lot of folks forget that the vast majority of the country is is such a great opportunity. And. I think people want to focus on, or at least prior to COVID, you know, the cool spots to go to New York, you know, LA and everything else. And great. You know, I think it's cool to make a lot of money. So that's our goal. And we want yeah. to make customers happy. And there's a lot of folks out there to, to, you know, get after. So that's really been the strategy. Yeah, I mean, to that end, and going back to 2017, when you guys really ramped up growth, you had many grow. Um, you know, I, I, I've seen this in, in the 13 years I've covered this industry. I've seen a lot of examples of, you know, people get the stars in their eyes. They see, you know, the dollar signs. They see their number of locations, you know, um, quickly rising. And um, it's easy to maybe believe your own hype to some degree sure. and to yep. want to chase that. Um, because there was something telling you when you guys went with many, the mini growth strategy. Clearly, something was telling you, like, We've got some potential here. Let's go after it. What are yeah. some mistakes maybe in that process? Because for anybody who's listening who sees the potential, what are the lessons you learned about that on how you should maybe temper that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So I'll start with Honeygrow. Honeygrow is really a passion project, right? Like this this was like, in a sense, an extension of me. It's like, how do I make like, – it's an extension of my challenge in life. It was like I like really good food, but I'm killing myself with how I'm eating. So mm-hmm. how do I like do something that I can do lunch and dinner in, in, in suburban, urban, whatever. And that, that really was, it was a passion project. And, and luckily I had some good folks and we built it together. And, and that was that. I think Minigrow is more of a business solution. And it's funny, like um, you talk about a lot of investment bankers or whoever jump into this space. And I, I was obviously mm-hmm. in finance prior to this, but um, I wasn't really looking solely for, 
you know, just I mean, quick buck. There's there's definitely in finance easier ways to make money than starting a concept from scratch. So, you know, I would have been probably wealthier if I just moved back to New York and did something else. But at this, but sure. I, I mean, I love what we do, and I love you know the food, and I love scaling something. I mean, that's my passion. So that resonated with Honeygrow, whereas Minigrow, I think it was more like, all right, well, how do we do this urban concept, which we thought at the time was Honeygrow? Suburban stores were beginning to take off. But how do we do something where we can reduce capex and and have a, a less focus on the labor model? Um, food was great. I have no, I I, I missed the food mini grows. Really, really good. I think if mm-hmm. we did one or two mini grows where the rent wasn't Manhattan rents, it would have been fine. We had a couple actually that were making money. Um, but there was also a lot of chefs in the kitchen at that point in time. We had a big team. Everyone wanted to weigh in, um, and it became this almost like Frankenstein's monster of a concept. And you know, that's for me. I was just like, fuck it excuse my language, but I was just kind of like, whatever. At this point, it's mm-hmm. not taken off the way it should be. We made our mistakes, let's own it. And more importantly, Honeygrow was really beginning to really explode in a good way. It was like, all right, we made some tweaks. It's working great. We, we had some bumps, we fixed it, but let's spend another year to really get it right. And that was the best year ever in 2019 to really just spend our time looking at everything on the PNL, looking at food quality, looking at training, looking at ticket times, looking at accuracy issues. I mean, really, that was something I, that's great. So my recommendation um, for what it's worth is uh, I tell folks this all the time who are trying to start concepts, take your time, let it breathe. Um, I did that with Honeygrow, believe it or not, in the first few years, we had two for the first, I think, two, two and a half years. And that was great. You know, it's just, I was living in the restaurants. I learned the good, the bad, what we needed to work on. And um, you can't just think about going from zero to 100 right away. It doesn't work. And I, I learned that the hard way. So you got to make sure it works. Right, right. Going back to the some of the efficiencies you guys have gone for, the reducing your GNA in particular. Yep. Um, for anybody who else is finding themselves in this sort of bloat situation, um, how do you fix that? Where do you start? I mean, where did you start when you guys looked at at reducing yeah. your GNA? What's the first natural thing to do? Yeah, and I'll start with how you get there. So, you know, when you're, we raise money and you think you need this and you, you need that, and it all makes sense on paper. Um, and I would come into the office and be a lot of folks walking around and I was like, what do these guys do? And it, a lot of times department heads would make their hires and whatnot. Um, you know, when you're, when you're at a point where you need to find cash, you sit down and you, it's a horrible, tough thing to do, but you got to figure out, Hey, like, what do we really need here? And we had a lot of good folks that are no longer at Honey Grow that, um, you know, it's, I wish they were still here and they were great, but we had to make some kind of like, Hey, what do you really need to make this work? And, um, we sat down, made, had those conversations. We had to do reduction in GNA. I think from there, we knew some people would leave anyways, and they did. Um, mm, mm. and, and so we, we kind of like factored that in a little bit and then you're left with a new number. So, you know, we went from a pretty big number to, you know, I, I had this conversation with someone who's a board member of a pretty popular fast casual brand um, in the U S and I told my numbers, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, you know, it's, we don't have a fancy office. We, we had a nice place uh, six, seven years ago, moved out of it. Don't need it. Um, we have a, you can see my, my office here. It's in center city, Philadelphia. I spend mm-hmm. the vast majority of my time in the restaurants and that's where I like to be. I like to spend time with the GMs and everyone else. So long story short, it's a tough conversation. Um, but at the end of the day, it's what's right for the company. And so mm-hmm. that's what we got to focus on. Sticking with this concept of bloat, um, I feel like in the last two, three years, particularly with COVID, 
it's it's possible to have um to have gotten overly bloated with tools uh because like the technology in particular <laughs> yeah. that's become available i mean it just feels like there's a lot of options out there for you know pos and um off-premises service Crazy. and all the things so <laughs> tell me about that then i mean because so gna is one thing but there's all these other you know fancy tools shiny toys that you could also put in the kitchen that maybe not worth it so how do you how do you make sure that part of it is also um you know doing what you need to do and not you know wasting any money on those kinds of things i i think that's a great question i'm, I'm reading um walter isaacson's biography on on um, albert einstein and mm. albert einstein everything that he did was all about simplicity right it was like had, e equals mc square is like the most simple thing the equation should be simple <clears throat> and it's it's honestly like in our, our philosophy for almost everything in this company, it's like, if you're going to add complexity to something, you better figure out how to keep it simple, right? It's like an iPhone, like it's a super complex device. It seems simple. So on the tech stack for us, we want to keep it as simple as possible. You know, we have Toast for POS. We use Restaurant 365 for accounting. Um, we use Olo on third-party integration. And there's some other stuff here and there, but I am a firm believer on keeping our tech stack clean. And, you know, we get hit up all the time. You know, there, there's some really good stuff out there that we've said no to, that we just either weren't ready or wasn't the right fit for us. Um, there's other stuff out there that I just personally don't see a need for. And again, mm -hmm. what truly matters at the end of the day is making sure that the restaurant experience for the customer is amazing. And that's the focus. That That's the North Star at the end of the day. It's like people can get caught up in the bullshit. And what's really important, why I started this company, is I love seeing people happy from the Honeyger experience. Food's got to be great, got to be fast, accurate, clean. Hospitality's got to be amazing. So mm -hmm. is this piece of technology going to in any way help? Well, I'll give a plug for Olo real quick. Yeah. I mean, helping with third-party integration, sure. It's become 30% of our business, right? Or more than that. And it's gotten sticky and I don't think that's going anywhere. So to make mm -hmm. sure that that integration is functional, that the customer can order, that we can pick up the order, that we can contact a driver as necessary. Yeah, that's that. we need that. Um, accounting platforms, yeah, we're doing weekly PLs here, right? Like we, we want to know all of our numbers as much as possible, but there's some stuff out there that it's like, I don't think that's going to help. And if I think if you look at it from that perspective and it's not going to reduce cost, then forget it. You just mm -hmm. stay focused. I want to talk about the general fast casual industry because <clears throat> I, I think you guys follow this trajectory that is overlaps fairly neatly with the industry in general. Um, in that, you know, coming out of the last recession was really the birth of fast casual, the modern fast casual industry um, in many ways. At least that was when you started to see a lot of um, Chipotle imitators, I guess I would say, but also really genuine innovation, including Honey Grow around fast casuals. Um, you know, I feel like 2015 was sort of a pivotal moment for the industry, particularly with Chipotle and E. coli. I think yeah. we started to see, you know, maybe the momentum start to, to dip a little bit, you know, come into the recession. Um, you know, we, we yep. sort of saw, you know, kind of both ends where you saw some sort of fall off and not be able to get through. But a lot of fast casual innovation really, um, I think, take a next step forward with so much of the digital ordering and the tools that became available and necessary in the pandemic. I'm just yep. curious, and, and so obviously Honeygrow, you guys have, have ridden those waves. Where do you see things standing today? Because, I, again, going back to the beginning of our interview, I've seen so many emerging operators that sprung up early in the 2010s. They have mm. gotten this far, um, you know, many still sticking around. You were just telling me before we hit record, you're still going into the restaurants and you're still working the line when you have to. 
I mean, how do things stand with so many emerging brands that jumped into the space, had a passion, had a great idea, have grown sure. their business, and you know where they stand today, and where you you see things going? I guess in the coming years. I think you nailed this last time. There's a lot of folks out there that jump into the business and they say they see Chipotle or they see other you know quote unquote bowl concepts, which I find ridiculous. Like I think there's so many mm-hmm. bowl concepts out there, a variation of Chipotle, whatever it is. Some do it well, some don't, and um, they all have the same dream of being the next whoever, right? And I think a lot of times they lose sight of what's actually important, which is making the customer happy. And building a brand that can be profitable. Unless you want to be a nonprofit, God bless. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. Um, And so I think people kind of just would rather be on Instagram and do cool stuff and, you know, look cool. And that's great. Good for them. Our focus here is to build a great brand over and over again, replicate what works, keep the customers happy and provide, you know, create a very healthy, sustainable company. And that's, that's Mm -hmm. key. And so a lot of brands, um, they'll do like back in 2018, I just, one of the reasons why we stopped going to downtown areas was because there was like a green bowl concept here, three national fast casuals going down the street there and a variation of, ever see the movie Multiplicity with uh, Michael Keaton? Oh, yeah. yeah, sure. It was kind of like, it was kind of like people were making the clone of the third clone as a fast <laughs> casual brand. And it's just, it's shitty, right? Like you're, Something's I'm lost just, in translation. Like, some, it's not the it's not right. It's not the second clone or first. It, it just was like oh. So it's almost depressing sometimes when you see all these like variants of mm-hmm. of the same thing, and there's no innovation, and there's nothing special and exciting. Um, and some brands do it amazing, and there's others that mm-hmm. don't. And um, I think after 2020, a lot of those brands that knew how to do it and operate flourished. And I think a lot of those other brands, there's nothing appealing to it, and they kind of just went away. So I. You know, I, I, you know, we have we have a lot of other brands out there. That, like I said, there's there's some brands that do it incredibly well, and we look up to them. You know, we're like, wow, how do we do that? And um, there's others out there that I don't think should exist, and that's a little harsh. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they're going in with the right intentions, so or the or the, or the focus of, like mm-hmm. I said, making the customer happy over and over again, and doing something you're passionate about, and ultimately, you know, building something that's going to be sustainable. I think that's what's key. Yeah, I guess it's um, it's it's having the right intentions, right? I mean, because another way I guess I could phrase this too is, um, you know, recently was looking over uh, sales data, and um, I, I saw that the youngest brand to hit a billion dollars in sales is Raising Cane's, and Raising Cane's was founded yeah. in 1996. Um, Shake Shack's right. going to get there soon. Shake Shack founded in 20, yep. 2005. They'll, they'll get there soon. Yep. But I, I was theorizing that I think we, we've almost, we're, we're probably seeing the, we've seen the last of billion dollar brands spring up in the restaurant industry. Um, mm. probably just because of competition. There's just so many options out there. And so I, I asked this, um, mostly around the idea of, you know, for people who are getting into this business, um, you know, not to say that billion dollars is the goal because even $10 million is great and successful and you can live a happy life. Sure. Right. But still it's, is again, going back to this concept of the folks who chase the number of locations, chase notoriety, open lots of locations and, and whatever it is else that they, they want to accomplish. It's harder and harder to do that. 
And so I, I just wonder for those folks who are getting into this business, like how, how do you, what are your suggestions to people on how they should refine their expectations and what they should even consider a success, I guess? Yeah, that's a good question. I'll start with like Shake Shack and Racing Canes are two brands I look up to. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think, you know, they've done a great job. Um, a lot of brands that are out there who have expanded extraordinarily smart. I think, you know, both brands are in very competitive spaces in terms of burgers, like five guys burger is great, right? Sorry, but I don't, I'm sure people disagree with me. I think it's a great burger, whatever. Yeah. Shake Shack is in a very, also great burger, very competitive space and they shine, they do very well. I think, you know, you, you're, you're covering this all the time. There's so many, um, fried chicken concepts now. Like I, I personally can't keep up with them. I think Raising Keynes does a great job. There's one that opened up here in Philadelphia. I think they execute really well. Um, you know, they're, they're doing great. And I, I, you know, like I said, those are two brands I I admire, um, specifically because they execute well, but also because they can shine above the rest of the pack, right? There's a few in each Mm -hmm. pack and they're one of them. Um, I think what's key is outside of that, um, in terms of execution is being distinct. I think it's really key to be a brand that is a bit different. So, you know, not too many people. And when I created the concept, I didn't want to be another burger concept. I didn't want to be another chicken finger concept. I didn't want to be another burrito concept. Like what's something that really hasn't been done. And that mm-hmm. was my idea with Honeygrow. It's like, all right, we can go a different direction and really focus on being able to do lunch and dinner, male, female demographic. We're, we're 60% dinner as a business. So, um, how do we do that? And I think that brand distinction in terms of like menu distinction is really key. So you want it to be something approachable and at the same time, we say craveable with a bit of a health halo, right? So, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to get a salad today, but I'm going to get the Buffalo chicken um, stir fry for dinner, which with blue cheese probably isn't healthy, um, but it's delicious. You can get without blue cheese and you're okay. But mm-hmm. that's the thinking. Like you want it to be craveable, approachable with health halo. So the, the distinction is key. Um, I don't see a lot of brands out there too distinct. Like I said, you know, there's a lot of these bowl, infinite bowl concepts and great. There's so many salad concepts out there. Um, hey, good luck. I, I think some brands have done it well. Some some have not. Um, but I think that distinction in terms of concept is going to be key for emerging brands. Yeah. Well, and it leads me up to <clears throat> the present day. And, you know, early in pandemic, um, with a lot of other things we got, you know, what will the future look like wrong, right? I mean, there's, and we're, we're seeing that mm. now because things have normalized probably a lot more than we thought they would. But, you know, one theory I think early on was that the winners of the pandemic would be the major chains. The losers would be independents and small chains. Um, in many ways, that's been correct. Um, unfortunately, many independents have closed and smaller chains uh, as well. Yep. But I, you know, I've also seen a lot of, you know, smaller emerging chains, they pivoted pretty quickly, they figured it out, you know, especially with off premises um, coming to the rescue, I think they did okay. But now but but probably worse than the pandemic has been inflation and, you know, food costs and labor and supply chain. And I, you know, seems like that's been harder for the emerging chains. Um, than than the big guys, and so now you are seeing a little bit more of that, um, you know, division between the the haves and the have-nots. I guess you could say. Now we come into a recession, twenty twenty three, and um, I'm just curious, like 
you know, for emerging brands, what are the options? How do you get out of this? And, and you know, uh, recent episode, I spoke with Phil Petrilli of Untamed Brands. We talked about, you know, he's one of these guys who's who's um, acquiring brands and leveraging scale in that way. And you and I kind of spoke on how we, we see that happening probably more and more in the coming year. Yep. Um, is, is that the way forward for Fast Casual, for emerging brand, I guess, especially? Is it the, is it that, you know, you, you have to find ways to, um, you know, tap into scale to be able to uh, negotiate better costs and to be able to get around some of these challenges that are going to come with a recession. Um, just taking a temperature of how the economic forces at play right now are affecting smaller chains in particular. Yeah, it, it's a good question too. Like, I think it depends, right? Like, I, I've seen some smaller guys, and, and we're smaller, right? We're only thirty-one locations. Um, we really, and, and again, it goes back to that two thousand eighteen nineteen period of time. We're like, well, how do we really get the prime cost tight. And we did. Um, and then with inflation, you know, th- there's a few options, obviously raising prices. We did. I hate raising prices. Um, I think some companies out there have done it a little too much and you're seeing some pushback. We haven't seen much pushback. Um, but at the same time, if there's an, an error, people are that much more upset. So you gotta be really careful yeah. and focus on the execution more than ever now. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think if, if there, there are smaller brands out there that can fold into someone bigger and you can leverage their purchasing power, um, absolutely. I mean, we're lucky enough to be at a certain level where we do get some purchasing power and it's massively helped us reduce food costs. <clears throat> um, because we're growing, we're able to get folks at the GM level below that DM level who see the growth opportunity. And so they'll jump on as well, just focusing on labor for a second. Um, that's really been helpful. But you know, I, I, I do think that if you are a smaller brand looking to grow fast, I don't, it, it's not like it was the last decade. And, you know, at RFDC, a lot of the conversations that I've been, I, I was having just in general was no one really sure is where valuations are going right now. Um, there's not too many transactions that have been done. Um, I think the, uh, you know, you see it every day, like the, the crazy tech valuations for some of these brands, like not happening. And, you know, there's a bit of a reckoning with reality, which is good. I think it's a good yeah. thing. I think everyone just needs to focus on what's important. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think those those crazy numbers are necessarily going to be happening. Um, do I think inflation will, will subside? I do. I think eventually it, it will go down. Um, hopefully gas prices this winter don't skyrocket. You know, for us, we definitely see a correlation with gas prices and um, transactions. We were comping, you know, 20% through July and then Gas prices in Philadelphia Metro, kind of the Northeast, went really high and went to single digit on comp, and thank God it went back up. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's there's a lot of variables at play. But long answer here for a good question. I think ultimately, if someone's looking to really scale, and there's an opportunity to fold into someone else, and the deal made sense, I think it could be a great opportunity. Yeah. All right, Justin. Last question for you is for those who are listening right now who are. In, in your shoes circa 2014, 2015, call it, that are, mm-hmm. you know, have this um, successful business, a lot of excitement, a lot of potential. They're exploring their options for, for where to go. Um, I, I'm sure you have had a lot of options uh, in front of you over the last 10 years in terms of what path yep. you could take. And you're just trying to, you know, think about the best path forward. You've got you know, folks coming in offering, um, you know, money, offering investment for you to grow. Um, franchising is always an option for folks. Any number of things, any paths you could take. 
What is your recommendation, your advice for people in those shoes on how to navigate growth? What's your advice for how they should evaluate that and, and the things they should consider as they consider growth opportunities? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like on your last podcast, um, the conversation was there's a lot of brands that can get to a certain unit count and then they, they die. Yeah. And some can get past certain points in time and flourish and some can't. Um, and we were fortunate enough to get past, I think, one of the biggest hurdles, um, you know, that that double digit unit count. Right. It's not easy. Um, totally different skill sets involved. Right. Three is a totally different ballgame than nine. So I right. think what's really important is for and I'll speak to founders. And first, I think it's important to really know your model. I think, as you said in the last podcast, you know, you, you can have something that works really well. And the second one's pretty good. And then you open the third one and, you know, it's a different it doesn't work. You got to really understand why it works. It could be, you know, location, real estate's key, you know, mistake I made, you know, seven years ago was overpaying in rent, looking at demos. Oh yeah, we'll do, you know, two X in terms of sales. It should be fine with these demos. And then you don't, why? So you, you learn along the way. Um, and I think those mistakes are awesome, right? As long as you don't make them again, you need to learn mm-hmm. and we're not going to make the same mistake twice. So I think embracing those mistakes, identifying them, I, I think is really important to never let your ego get in the way. Um, if it's not working, make a change, right? So 2018, it wasn't working. So, okay, cool. You know what? We got to make some changes. We did it and it was painful and, you know, sucked, but you got to do it. I see a lot of founders out there kind of look at me glazed. If I give any feedback on, Hey, here's what I think could be different. And Mm -hmm. what do I know? I'm like, okay, cool. Like you don't have to take my advice. I've been there and done that, man. (laughs) And you know, we're not at a hundred units yet. So I'm always seeking advice from people all the time. You know, it's, it's, it's awesome to be able to be in a place where I can call certain folks and they're willing to give me advice and share war stories. And Hey, here's what you should look out for. Hey, I wouldn't do that. And thank God they tell me this because, you know, I don't know everything. So I think removing ego from the equation is really key for founders. Um, and focus on what matters, like customer experience and at the same time, the P&L, right? Don't jump into a location because it's the cool street in your neighborhood. You know, I'll make fun of, uh, I don't want to make fun of towns because I might get yelled at for that. <laughs> I don't want to push back. <laughs> but I know, I, I, I know somebody that recently signed a lease on a very expensive street in a very expensive northeastern city. And I was like, why? And he's like, well, you know, this is where you want to be. And I always wanted to be in this street. I'm like, dude, the rent's like. $400,000 a year. Like, what are you thinking? Like, wow. you're not going to do, you know, what you need to do in terms of, of sales to justify that rent. But, you know, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll show you. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, okay, cool. So I think <laughs> having humility is key, knowing your model. Like, hey, we know what works for us. Um, we're really disciplined by it. There was a great site that we saw recently and the rent didn't work into our box. It just didn't make sense after you underwrote it. And it was mm-hmm. painful because we wanted that space. But you know, we have discipline. Like, all right, cool. Take it. Another awesome national brand wound up taking it. And hey, God bless. If you guys can do the numbers there, go for it. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. So I think being disciplined is extraordinarily important for founders. And don't just focus on valuation and, and focus on, on that. Like, like I said, be in the restaurants, understand the customer, understand your team more importantly, know the food, know the menu, know the ins and outs of it. Like breathe your, what you're doing as a founder. And then it'll, it'll all kind of come into play. That's great. That's helpful advice. Justin Rosenberg, the founder and CEO of HoneyGrow. Thanks for your time today, Justin. I really appreciate it as always. Man, my pleasure. Anytime with you, please. Thank you. 
Have you heard about the California Food Service Instant Rebate Program? You can save up to $3,000 instantly on energy-efficient food service equipment when you purchase from participating dealers. Find out more at www.caenergywise.com slash instant-rebates and find a participating dealer near you. Skip the paperwork and save instantly on your food service equipment. That's www.caenergywise.com slash instant-rebates. That was my interview with Honeygrow founder and CEO, Justin Rosenberg. So what should you learn from this interview? Here are my seven takeaways. My first takeaway is that you should minimize your GNA and focus on great people instead. Your GNA, of course, are your general and administrative expenses. These are things like salaries, rents, all of the little things that add up and ultimately can cost you a fortune and get in the way of smartly scaling your business. This was exactly what happened with Honeygrow, and Justin said he had to make some tough decisions. Basically, the company had gotten bloated and had made some decisions uh, in expanding that they maybe just got a little out over their skis a bit. So to make those tough decisions, uh, Justin had to slim the business way down, which he did over the course of 2017 and 2018. He focused on having the right people and not adding too many bells and whistles by having the right people on the team who knew how to scale this business smartly and by trimming a lot of the fat, Honeygrow was able to get back on track and get back to growth. My second takeaway is that sometimes you need a moment to catch your breath and refine your model. So that's exactly what Justin did in this time when he realized Honeygrow had become bloated. He looked at everything on the PL. He looked at food quality, training, ticket times, accuracy. He decided to take a step back, stop growing, stop just trying to scale for scaling's sake and refine the business model. He said he couldn't let his ego get in the way of some of those tough decisions that had to be made, and he had to really take that breath and look harder at the right business model that would get Honeygrow to where he knew it could go. My third takeaway is that there is untapped potential in smaller markets. One of the decisions Honeygrow made after refining the business model was to not invest so much in the downtown business areas in the major eastern eastern seaboard cities as it had done, but to look instead at some smaller towns around Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland. They've found massive success in some of these towns because the business works really well there and there's a better economic model to be had with cheaper rent and more affordable costs. This is something we've talked about on the podcast before, but bears repeating, there is so much white space out there in the country and so much potential to scale your business if you don't get too caught up in the lights of the big cities, so to speak. Look at some of the smaller markets because you're going to have a better economic model there and you you are also going to have a hungry customer there as well. My fourth takeaway is to not get too bogged down in complex technologies. Justin talked about how important it was to keep the business model simple. And in a day and age when so many technologies are available to restaurant operators, it could get easy to layer a layer upon layer upon layer on the tech stack of technologies that you might not even need. As Justin says, if it's not going to reduce your costs, 
then forget it. Just keep it simple. Focus on investing in technology that you need, not those things that you think are fancy and will get your customer's attention. You want to provide the customer with the best experience that you can, and sometimes that's the simplest solution. My fifth takeaway is that if you are starting a concept from scratch, don't just clone what's popular. This was something where we, Justin and I, as we talked about the competitive landscape and the ability to scale a restaurant concept today, it, we talked about the fact that you know you have to have a distinct concept to rise above that competition to get the attention of the customer. And really, especially in the mid-2010s, we saw this trend of just regurgitating what was popular, of cloning a clone of a clone, as Justin was putting it. And you get this business that ultimately is just no good because it's just ripped off other ripoffs, essentially. So for those of you in the early stages of building a business, or if you're thinking about launching a restaurant, consider how you can make it distinctive. Consider how you can make it unique and your own thing. What you should be doing is creating a sustainable business that, as, as Justin says, makes your customer happy over and over. That's what's going to make a profitable, sustainable business. My sixth takeaway is that mistakes can be awesome, so long as you don't make them again. You need to learn. You need to embrace your mistakes. Justin and Honeygrow, they made a lot of mistakes along the way. But what I love about Honeygrow and what I've loved about following this journey with Justin over the last couple of years is how, how he approached those mistakes, learned from them, fixed them, and didn't repeat them. And now Honeygrow is so much more of a healthy business for that sake. So if you're if you find yourself in a tough spot, consider those mistakes that you've made. Learn from them. Embrace them because you can really lay a path out before you that avoids those mistakes in the future and really can make an even better business than you had before. My seventh and final takeaway is don't let your ego get in the way of your brand's potential. I said a little bit earlier, but it bears repeating. Your ego can often get in the way of your potential because you're too focused on those precious things to you, The some of those um, sacred components of the business that you think are what makes it so great. But you really have to focus on what matters. You have to focus on your P&L. You have to have some humility and you have to say that you know your ego is not why you're doing this. You're doing this to serve your customers. So don't let it get in your way because your brand could go so much further than potentially what your ego is letting it do today. Those are all my takeaways for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to Takeaway wherever you listen to podcasts and leave your feedback. You can also email me at sam.okus at informa.com. Thanks again and talk to you next week.